Well, we are very fortunate now to welcome to XEP journalist Stephen Totillo, now of Gamefile News. Stephen, we're looking forward to picking your brain today about all things Xbox and games journalism. But of course, we must ask, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. well. One of my kids is sick today, so you know I had more of a sick day than a than a than a normal work day. But when you're when you're running your own business now, you you know you can kind of be more flexible, I guess. Nobody to answer to but myself and, and the readers, but the readers weren't expecting a newsletter today. We do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and uh, today was Tuesday that they were recording, so we're good. Yeah, I would imagine working from home affords you certain luxuries, but also certain pressures. Do you feel the need to be working at any at, at all times because you're at home? I wouldn't say that being home is what does it. It's just a work ethic, you know, which is sometimes a virtue, probably sometimes a flaw that mm -hmm. I've had from, you know, just to me, being a journalist is there's there's really no off hours um, as defined by the, the the work that you do because news can happen at any moment and depending on the beat that you cover and the out kind of outlet you write for, you might need to put that news out there into the world at any given moment. Obviously, mm -hmm. you need to have boundaries and limits and what have you, but it, the nature of the job from when it started for me was something where you kind of can't really control what the timing is going to be. And you just try to find the, the best possible balance working from home. Didn't really change that. Of course mm -hmm. it does make it more tempting to, uh, or, or it's, I'm more prone to doing work probably when I, when I shouldn't be, because there's no, you know, commute to delineate. Okay. You kind of should be ending the day. That's our mm -hmm. thing. That makes good sense. And I think it's important though, that we clarify for readers or for listeners, rather, I should say you've held a number of, various positions in in at a number of outlets in the games mm. media space That's from true. Kotaku to MTV News to, to Axios mm -hmm. and now with Gamefile. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of your experience? Because you have a 20 year career in games coverage. That's right. That's right. Right, right, right. I, um, I, I, at this point, I have a lot of places I've worked, but I work at each of them for a long time, I think. So um, it's not like <laughs> I'm not I'm not changing hats that that frequently. Uh, the first thing I ever wrote about video games professionally was in 1999. <laughs> I was an intern oh, nice. for Newsweek magazine when it was a magazine. I don't even know if it's still a magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a very short blurb about a Nintendo 64 game called Rocket Robot on Wheels, uh, which was made by Sucker Punch, who became much more famous for making the infamous <laughs> series and, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Ghost of Tsushima, what have you. But this was their first game, which was for the N64. And I was a I was a national affairs intern, meaning I covered a lot, you know, helped out with like the national news. I come out of graduate school. Uh, I got a graduate degree in journalism, and uh, but there was a tech section, and they were interested in occasionally doing gaming things, and I was interested in gaming, so I was like, oh well, there's this game I heard about that seemed interesting. So because you're at a big mainstream publication like Newsweek, they'll send you the early cartridge, which the car N64 cartridges in the back in the day, if you got got one early, they were extra long, so like double double tall like N64 cartridges. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started then, and then I didn't, I did the kind of, uh, games journalism a little bit on and off, but not that much for several years. And in, uh, 2004 or so, I got a, got more serious about it, started writing about games for the New York times. I've kind of written on and off for them for my whole career, but then it was four years at MTV news, 2005 to 2009. 
listeners who know who Kurt Loder is might like to know that I sat opposite the wall of Kurt Loder. So his office was next to my cube. Um, listeners who don't know who Kurt Loder is, you can, you can have, uh, skip that fact, I guess. Don't, don't need to remember it. Uh, 11 years at Kotaku. I was deputy editor there and then editor in chief for nine years. And then at Axios, I was uh, doing a gaming newsletter for two and a half years. And now I've been independent with uh, GameFile. And through that time, I've uh, you know, been very fortunate to be able to make a, make a living covering games. Uh, it's, I love games. I love journalism. So it's been a nice combination of two. I've interviewed you know, just about anybody you can think of um, in the in the games industry and c- culture games over the last twenty years. So um, it's been a it's been a fun ride, and hopefully, there's a lot more in it, uh, left for me to do. Is there anyone left on your hit list that you want to interview? Uh, yeah, it cycles because there's people like well, there's people that I never for whatever reason have never spoken to, like Strauss Zelnick, the head of uh, Take Two, for some reason. So I've interviewed the heads of. Ubisoft, Nintendo, Sony, Xbox, uh, EA, Activision, Blizzard, whatever, uh, all these companies. But for some reason, never, never spoke to Strauss. Um, actually, that's not true. I did. Sp- I, he did come to the office at, at, at Kotaku. We were part of Gawker mm-hmm. Media, and he was buddies with the owner. So I guess that's not true. I never interviewed him, but I did. I did chat with him very briefly. These days, though, it's just like you know, new and interesting people are constantly cycling in. You know, just the other day, Blizzard. Yesterday, uh, Blizzard yeah. had a new president, uh, and I'm Johanna. to talk to her. Yes, Johanna, yeah. Fares, who had been running the Call of Duty uh, business for Activision. And that's, uh, I've never spoken to her before and I'm not sure she'd be interesting to talk to. So there's always new people to, to chat with, but I've been fortunate. Like you look at companies like Nintendo that are very closed off and I was fortunate enough to have a lot of access to them over the years. Um, interviewed, uh, Satoru Iwata, the, the, the beloved and you know, late CEO of Nintendo three times for three different outlets, um, had really interesting conversations with him. Um, Shigeru Miyamoto, Shinya Takahashi, the, the, the sort of lead, lead devs at Nintendo, um, which were, you know, pretty good conversations to have over the time. So yeah, it's been, it's been nice. I mean, I, I, basically it's a, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to cover games. And I always think of myself as working for the readers. They're the ones who ultimately keep the lights on. Used to be more indirect, right? They, their interest would, I guess, facilitate advertising around my stories. Now they literally do because, uh, my game file is reader funded. So, Mm -hmm. um, people are finally directly paying me for my work. Um, and so I'm always trying to, you know, do everything I can to to bring interesting, you know, news and, and commentary and what have you to to readers and getting to, you know, talk to people who otherwise aren't really talking much to the press or may not be answering the questions that I would like to ask them that I know the readers would like to hear answers to as well um, is, is a is a fun opportunity. And, a, and a, I think, you know, it's been a satisfying career to pursue. Mm-hmm. I, I've watched a lot of games journalism change since that direct access that you talked about has become more and more uh, readily available, I guess, for all internet users. You know, it started in my mind with Twitter. We were able to tweet at journalists, at athletes, Mm -hmm. at politicians. Um, And I've seen that, that connection strengthen over the years. And then seemingly now that I feel like there's a rift at times between uh, journalism or journalists, I should say, critics, content creators, and the audiences they serve. And then with the developers themselves, because in many ways, gamers, viewers, readers, all have access to the developers of content themselves. I'm curious if if that direct access has changed the way you felt the need to report over time. 
well, I think there was, I, I certainly was aware of there being, you know, anxiety when companies started doing like company blogs and putting, basically putting their own press releases out on their own sites. Mm-hmm. Now I sense that there were some people in my field who were like, oh, well, what do we do now? And mm-hmm. my sense was, well, if you can be replaced by a corporate blog, then you should rethink the kind of journalism that you were doing. Mm-hmm. The, the access and the proximity to these voices that uh, has increased, as you note, uh, over the years has only made it more and more incumbent on journalists to, to do the work of journalism and to find things out more often than not, or not maybe not more often than not, but more importantly than, than ever, finding things out that people otherwise weren't going to tell you and maybe didn't want you to know. So that can veer towards, of course, having to cover, you know, um, you know, scandal and misconduct, what have you, things like that. that these companies aren't, you know, going to race to talk about, but it can also just be about synthesizing conversations, noticing a trend that's interesting that maybe it's happening at three different development studios or three different companies and noticing it and then saying, okay, I'm going to talk to people from each of these. So to use a pretty benign example of that, uh, last year for Axios, I noticed that uh, I did a piece about accessibility around phobias. So um, there are lots of accessibility options being added by a lot of AAA game studios, primarily some indies as well, regarding uh, sightedness and hearing and you know, sort of physical dexterity. And that's all noble and important and super valuable. What what I found really interesting is that accessibility has gone to the point where developers are also considering other things that might alienate a player from being able to play a game. In this case, whether or not, say, depictions of spiders is going to trigger arachnophobia or whether being underwater in a sequence of a game is going to trigger thalassophobia, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so you had designers at Sony on Horizon Forbidden West having a thalassophobia mode. You had um, the folks that made Grounded a couple of years ago or a few years ago at Obsidian had an arachnophobia mode that had gotten some press. Uh, the EA folks at Star Wars, making Star Wars Jedi Survivor over at Respawn also had an arachnophobia mode. So, okay, there's a bunch of different individual instances of this. Let me talk to all of them. And I did. And what are they doing that's in common? What's kind of different? What, one of the things that struck me is that... Uh, they're kind of all winging it. So there's not really the same science that they're researching. I don't know how much of that is even out there for them to access, to figure out what the extent to which gaming content can indeed, you know, can genuinely trigger such phobias, but they're, they're alert to it. And, and in one case, the EA devs, they just noticed a colleague not able to work on parts of the game because the content was triggering their phobia this particular monster. And so they thought, okay, well, let's just kind of dial it back bit by bit and then see if they're more comfortable with it. So very informal, but an interesting frontier in the overall movement for, you know, sort of making games more accessible. So it's things like that that interest me as well. And I should also mention journalism, of course, isn't just speaking to powerful people. In fact, powerful people have the biggest platforms and the most opportunity to express their voice anyway. So part of what's incumbent on journalists, myself included, is to speak to those who don't have voice. So it's the people who are, whether that's an indie developer versus a AAA developer, whether it is a gamer, whether it is a person who is just kind of, you know, working in in, in the salt mines of a big AAA studio and are being mistreated or have a different opinion on how things are going or been laid off um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, certainly pertinent to discussing, you know, the games industry these days. So part of what I see is is the importance of, of my role is to also make sure that I'm not just going for the voices that are easy to get to or the voices that have people paid to put them in front of me. You know, uh, the uh, the laid off the 1900 laid off workers at, uh, at Xbox last week largely didn't have you know a PR um, apparatus ready mm-hmm. to you know sort of communicate their perspective and it's their perspective is important. So reporting that out is is a key thing to do. I would say that 
one other thing to to go back to your the core part of your question, Luke, is that you you talked about the word use the word rift. Mm-hmm. There are different jobs are different, right? So being a reporter is already different than being a critic. And a lot of times in games journalism, reporting and criticism are conflated. And often they're held by the same person. And that's a weird aspect of games journalism. And I th- I would largely attribute it to the fact that, well, some people I think don't recognize the difference, but also because games are so time consuming to play that if you're already, and this is this is my judgment at Kotaku, if I was going to put a person on a 30 hour, 40 hour game to write a review of, and then there was reporting to do about something somebody discovered in the game or some issue that came up around the game studio vis-a-vis with the work they did on the game, the person who was in the best position to understand that situation and that story was the person who just spent 30 hours on the game, which was the reviewer. So the same people that I would need to do criticism of a game were often the people that were in the best position to do effective reporting about that game. But reporting is different. Like, you know, I mean, one level of it is we've seen all this controversy about access to Suicide Squad reviews. The reporters don't need the game in theory, right, to do their reporting. Mm-hmm. The critics do. And yet we know that if you're then going to try to report out what happened with Rocksteady that led to this game, you want somebody to have played the game. So you have, there's always that temptation to blur the lines. Content creators, to me, are presented or are treated by the industry the way that the press used to be, which is that I think the industry 10, 15, 20 years ago saw the gaming press as basically easy marks for... Um, okay, you're going to be so grateful to get access to us mm-hmm. that we don't have to worry about you being super critical. Or if we are worried that you're going to be critical, we can kind of come after you by threatening to withhold access. And so content creators, I think, are at least assumed by a lot of people in the industry to be more controllable, um, whether that's the case or not. And I think the press has more so been written off as we can't deal with these people. Maybe we don't get the same payoff because getting an article written up in this outlet isn't as valuable to us as getting featured in this person's YouTube channel. So I see the press as being held a little bit more at arm's length than they used to um, by the industry. The content creators embraced more. Um, and so that's to me is where you wind up having these different groups of people kind of situated differently vis-a-vis both each other mm-hmm. and, the f- and the field that, that they're covering, if that makes sense. It does. I have I have questions for, to follow up on, but Logan, I think you did as well. Yeah, I, uh, a lot of stuff I want to I want to touch on with that. Um, kind of quickly to to address that that concept of of influencers being approached for for content creation around a game's launch. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I was listening to Player One podcast with Chris Johnston, and he had mentioned that influencers um, he views as kind of actors doing a press tour for a film where they're they're there to kind of speak about the game and show it off and kind of uh, promote it in that sense. Whereas I think with what we're talking about here, journalism, addressing things that can't be uh, talked about from from bigger pieces of, of a company. And I'm curious if you fall in line with with that kind of mentality that Chris was talking about, if that's something that you you kind of resonate with, or do you think that it's it's a, a an analogy that doesn't quite hold water? Well, in that analogy, you're saying the influencers would be the the actors. The actors are officially part of the movie. The influencers aren't inherently so, right? So obviously they can mm-hmm. disclose that in this case, they are paid by the company to stream the game and, and, and promote the game and what have you. Um, 
but influencers are sometimes doing that and then sometimes they're not. And, and, and the best ones are very clear about when it is that they're doing something where they've been paid to stream Apex Legends or whatever, you know, whatever else. Um, mm-hmm. and, or, and then when they're, when they're not doing so. So I think that's its own kind of unique situation where you want there to be media literacy amongst their followers and viewers to understand, okay, this is one where the opinion might be a bit, you know, by definition because they're being paid they may be more inclined to be positive or they may not even be allowed to say something negative, you know, as, as yeah. the case may be. So I think reporters don't have to only report on scandal. It's just that the reporters are not in the industry, right? That's, that's the thing I emphasize at times because I sometimes hear reporters, you know, younger ones newer to the field will say, you know, well, our industry, whatever, our, we had a rough year last year, our industry. And it's like, well, are you talking about journalism? Or are you talking about gaming? Because those are separate, separate businesses, separate, separate fields. We as reporters are no more in the gaming industry than reporters covering the White House are part of the presidential administration. And if you find that you feel like reporters who cover politics are a little too cozy with politicians, well, then there you go. You know, then you definitely are aware of what your ideal would be, which is that there should be a divide. There should be a delineation between the people that are being covered and the people who are doing the coverage. And it's healthy to be watchful of that and recognize which outlets, which reporters are better about maintaining that sense of, uh, of separation or professional distance in order to do stories. And so you don't only have to be muckraking and looking for the negative or looking for the unknown, but you should certainly be thinking about what is it that I'm putting, putting my effort into and what is it doing for the reader, right? So you focus on the reader, you focus on, or if you're doing you know video news or whatever, you, the viewer, but you focus on the audience and what you feel like is helpful for them to know that they might not otherwise know. And then how can you do your job to tell them those things that they otherwise weren't going to find out? Or that maybe would be better for them to find out now than than later, because right, some, that's sometimes the nature of news yeah. is moving ahead. We of course go into the whole world of when is it genuine, worthwhile news to report on a game that's going about to be announced anyway, or that kind of thing. But in general, it's you think of the reader, what what it would be helpful for them to know. Where is that service that you can provide? Uh, and in some cases, those things that you are reporting things that otherwise were never going to be known. And so if you're doing your job, you are adding to an understanding about gaming overall. That's the beat you're covering, mm-hmm. um, which of course is very different than the, the job of the influencer or even the job of the critic, which are both valuable, helpful jobs for, for people, but different. Yeah. You touch on several aspects that I find very fascinating, both next to recent reporting of things like Suicide Squad to, mm. uh, I think, just watching social media audiences respond to different types of coverage. That coziness that you mentioned, um, I think, has caused rebellion in some social spaces versus not. And I wonder, I, I had a good conversation with um, a critic at IGN a couple days ago about Suicide Squad, and I asked how how is his tra- Travis um, how he separates some of the coverage, the frustration, review codes, et cetera. And right. he very much feels like he himself is a critic. There are reporters, there are uh, content creators. That might be my, that's my words. I'm sorry. He spe- specified that there are critics, there are news reporters. And then I feel like there are these nebulous states that some of them exist in where they can dabble in both or they're on a podcast or they have a voice on their socials and those bigger entities can struggle with discerning the journalism from the critique from everything else and like i think about reb valentine steven totillo jason schreier i think of journalism i don't necessarily always think that with every other name right 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 well i mean it's different pardon the 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 topic of 
separating frustrations from coverage, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're not supposed to be friends with the people we cover. And so we shouldn't be surprised if they do things that we don't like, right? So, so that's kind of mm -hmm. a baseline thing. And these are things that all reporters know. In some cases, it's reporters know these things, but maybe they haven't verbalized them to themselves or they don't have a person to, to kind of chat this through. In other cases, do they you have. think they know that? I'm genuinely curious because I'm I see more people trying to report without having gone to journalism school or learning well, you ethics. You don't have to go to journalism school. There, there's look, there was you know Gamergate drama a decade ago. God help us, it was so long ago. Um, where you know there was like, why are you not posting a code of ethics to Kotaku? And they saw that as the biggest scandal. And I wasn't doing that. Um, and my feeling was. Well, in that case, I knew that it was in bad faith and the attempt was, well, they wanted me to post a code of ethics so they can then say, wow, oh, look at all these ways you violated it and find some small technicality. But like I ran a very ethical ship in part because I had very clear sense of the independence of what journalists should be. I also mm -hmm. recognize that every single situation you deal with as a reporter is different and there are nuances to them all and there are um, there, there's no guidebook or playbook that prepares you for all of the complexities as they occur. For example... No, I, di I didn't expect when Bethesda blacklisted us back in the day that it was going to be for 10 years and carry with me to, you know, another outlet. I, actually, by the way, I think that I think Bethesda and I are cool now. We, I've, I've talked to them since I joined Game Files. So um, mm -hmm. I think we're, we're, we're past that, which is nice. But it was about it 10 years. It followed you? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 I had no idea. The, the Bethesda blacklist went from Kotaku, inclusive of Stephen Tatillo and Jason Schreier, to then followed... Stayed with Kotaku, but then went with me to Axios and went with Jason to Bloomberg. Um, mm. And again, I think it did. It, it has not because I've talked to them and they've given me comment on things, so they've acknowledged I exist, which is great. And 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 um, there's been some change of change of people there, so maybe that has had something to do with it. But it's not followed me to Gamefile, uh, so you know you're not prepared for oh ten years of anytime I have a story I'm going to report. I'm not even getting an acknowledgement in any way that, that, and, and, hey, okay, I'm not getting review code. Fine. I was prepared for that. But wait, they're not going to, they have a, a scandal or there's something where it'd be helpful for them to talk to the press. So, you know, maybe there's something where they can clear something up mm -hmm. and they won't talk. Right. And that, that becomes like an extra challenge, in especially in terms of the, the length that that went. Because my feeling would be after a while, like, can we just like sit down and talk this through? We've clearly have a difference of opinion on how we handled, you know, certain stories, but like, it's five years later and your lawyers refer to us all the time when they're citing our articles to defend you guys as a company against whoever you're suing or being sued by. So if your legal department is cool with our existence, can you all not be cool with our existence? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it can be things like that. It can be, um, there's this instance, tell me what you guys would do. Okay. So I, it, it, this is like eight years ago or so. And, um, baseline establishment is my name, right? Steven Totillo. We've established that that's my name. We have no, no disputing of that. We understand this is a key fact for everybody to, to, to think about in this example. So it's a few days before the Game Awards, which might have been called the Video Game Awards, the, the Spike VGAs might have been back in the day. I can't recall what it was. And um, But it was the Jeff Keighley operation. And I am sent, so this is probably more than 10 years ago because he's been doing it for 10 years. And I am accidentally CC'd on an email that was meant to be sent to Steven something else mm -hmm. at a game company talking about the game they were about to reveal at this Jeff Keighley extravaganza. And I'm the only person not from this company in the CC field. <laughs> so they clearly, this is a person who'd emailed me before and they just mm -hmm. were typing quickly and they accidentally did that. So suddenly I have a scoop. Mm -hmm. I have a scoop. I'm at Kotaku at the time. So yeah, this is definitely a, a bit ago. Um, and I'm like, do I report this? Because the normal Kotaku protocol would be, if we know it, we're going to put it out there. You know, radical transparency was the ethos of, of the company that I worked at. 
and as we approach it, you know, if this is newsworthy, we publish it. Occasionally, we would sit on something because we felt we're just getting ahead of marketing and there's not really any other virtue to telling the readers. So maybe that's not really that worth our, our, our doing. And this was very much in that realm. But, in, but aside from that, I was like, what are the ethics of reporting something that you know because you were accidentally CC'd? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do, is that fair or not? That's a, I, I, if it were me, I probably would hold on to the information mm-hmm. and address the person that had originally sent it and just said, Hey, this came out to me. I don't think it was an intentional thing, but how much of this information, like, like, I guess it depends on the rapport that you have with that person as well, too. If you have a close rapport, then it's kind of one of those things you'd want to breach with them to kind of be like, Hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is really good information. If this was any other person, I might run with this story, but I'm not trying to, because then it starts falling into that territory of like, okay, well, are you trying to blackmail me now? Like what's, what's going on with, with the intent here? And and, and I said, the reader comes first. Now, obviously you protect your sources, but this wasn't a source, right? This wasn't somebody who, who I was, you know, trusted with some information because they wanted me to know. And it wasn't somebody, it was, what do you do when you, by virtue of the fact that your name is spelled similarly to somebody else, find out a piece of information. And so, you know, I, I've, I, I thought about the situation. Ultimately I chose not to report on it because I, but I, it took me 24 hours to kind of think it through. And one of the, I felt weird about the fact that I knew this thing based on a person making a mistake. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I've also had other stories and other scoops and stuff that was relevant and stuff that I have published and that reporters that could talk with mine had published that w- how we found out about it wasn't always the most noble reason. Person gets laid off and they're pissed off, right? They send you something because they're like, fuck this company. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this out uh, and I, I, I'm going to get this out there because I want somebody to, you know, I want them to feel pain. And you get this information and you're like, well, I'm not here to facilitate your vengeance, but this is newsworthy information that I want that I want people to know. So- um, you, the reasons that you're getting the information, you want to know them, but they're not always the reasons that, uh, they're not always the most noble reasons, right? So sometimes something accidentally happens. Somebody leaves something on top of a trash can, which I was, is the reason I got one story one time. Cause I was just like, what's this thing on top of a trash can at E3? Oh, it's a binder with interesting information in it. Okay. Well, Sorry that that person didn't know how to throw their thing out, but I have this information now. Um, so in this case, it was like, well, I know by accident. That's not that's not too, such a such a noble thing because they mistyped it. But on the other hand, am I really under any obligation? So I talked to some friends of mine who you know I'd been in journalism school with or covered you know topics other than games, and we 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 looked for precedent. We found things like a police chief accidentally sending something to the crime reporter. Of course, we're talking about you know cops and crime data and stuff like that. Well it's much more likely that, that that's going to be newsworthy and you're not going to protect the, the, the authorities mistake, right? In this case, it's just like a PR person in a gaming company. There was mm-hmm. the factoring in of, does this person get fired if I report this and do they not, if I don't report it and what I feel, how would I feel about that? Right. Is it, is it worth it? So ultimately I, the, 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 the to kind of wind this long story down is I thought about if my reader knew how I got this information, because sometimes, you know, you get something you're not necessarily going to disclose how you got it. But if yeah. my reader knew, would I be embarrassed? Would I be ashamed? Would I feel like I hadn't, like that this would feel wrong in some way? And in this case, I was like, yes, this would feel wrong. Like my gut was like, this would feel wrong to say, well, we got this thing just telling you about a game a few days before it was announced because we were accidentally emailed on it. So I chose to not publish. 
But like, you don't, there's no playbook that prepares you for these things was the very long way I got back to that point. That's crazy because it feels a lot like recently we've had, uh, both like self-inflicted wounds that Luke likes to, to mention with, um, the court case with Xbox mm-hmm. and having right. all of their, their kind of information just oh, yeah. submitted to, to the court un, un, mm-hmm. uh, uh, redacted. And then we've had other situations where information is maliciously obtained through hacks and it's like insomniac. Yeah. Where, where do you, where do you find that kind of moral grounding to, to decide like, where should I be when reporting this kind of thing? That's been a big topic between a lot of outlets who I would say less of the, the journalistic side, more of the uh, critical side when it comes to content uh, uh, like um, coverage in this sense. And it's a very, sure. very nebulous thing at the moment, but yeah, anything you accidentally uh, submit to court is fair game. Like, especially if you're a <laughs> $3 trillion company, like, you know, you should have, you should have used a darker Sharpie or you should have not attached things to your PDF. Uh, insomniac was, is, you know, that was malicious. That was a crime that was, you know, p- putting out personal information, but yet even still within that, uh, and, and a reporter I greatly admire, Ethan Gatch over at Kotaku, um, who's fearless, he looked through it and he found discussions by Sony, uh, people in Insomniac and uh, talking about possible layoffs coming to the studio um, and the efforts that management was making to avert those layoffs. And that, like, however the information was received, once he found that, of course, that's something that he should be reporting on um, and giving Sony every opportunity to talk about it and contextualize and what have you. But that's something where it serves the reader. It serves possibly people in Insomniac, I think, to to know that. So the salacious details of how many X-Men games are planned or something like that, or Spider-Man games or whatever it was, um, you know, use your judgment on whether to, whether to cover that, I guess. But something where it's, it's you know, the professional futures of people, it's it's the thing, decisions people in power are making over people who have less power. That Those are, sto- those are the kinds of stories that um more often than not are of course you should publish i really i I appreciate the uh the the comment about giving sony the opportunity to address this as well too i don't think that really comes up too often nowadays where if a journalist finds something and they want to run with that story giving you know reaching out to the actual company or the pr team to say like hey do you want to make a statement about this because i'm going to be making that this this go live soon i don't think we really hear that too often it's the most elementary thing in journalism which is to give people a chance to share their point of view conventionally thought of as requesting comment um you should certainly when you're whatever journalism you're reading you should be looking for those lines in the articles that are saying you know we asked for comment um if you're not seeing that, sometimes reporters will leave that out just because it's taking up space, but they've done so. But often, oftentimes it can also be a tell that they didn't bother to. I certainly discover that when I reach out for comment regarding stories that are sometimes 24 hours old and I'm told you know, by a representative from the company or the studio or whatever, you're the first person to reach out to me. It'll happen when people's tweets go viral uh, and then they become a story in and of themselves. It'll happen when and regular people are just talking about something and they get swept up into a story and you say, okay, well, did anybody contact you? Am I really the first reporter? And, you know, too often that's the case, but not always. And I think in general, the quality of kind of hard uh, news reporting in Round Games has gotten better. You guys cited um, Rebecca Valentine and Jason Schreier before I mentioned Ethan Gatch. There's Nicole Carpenter over at Polygon. There's Nathan Grayson over at Aftermath. Um, there are quite a few reporters I see, you know, doing serious work. Uh, and 
doing it with a craft and a, and a carefulness that that I think you know merits it, it rewards the the audience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you should always be asking because you never know. And I I go my basic thing is if there's people I'm covering, they should never be surprised by the story I run. Mm-hmm. Um, I err on the side of over explaining what my piece is going to be. It's verboten to actually share a copy with people in advance. Um, some people ask for that. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. That's, we just don't do that. But um, you shouldn't be caught by surprise because A, if I tell you what I'm including in the story and I'm not giving you control of the copy, I'm not letting you edit it, then what's the worst that's going to happen to me? You're going to dispute it in some way that gives me more material that I can use because maybe you're going to give me another comment or something like that, which I'll choose whether or not to put all of it or some of it in the piece. I don't want your voice to overwhelm my story just because you're disputing what I'm reporting. Um, but, uh, you also, so I make it extra information. Also, like, what am I afraid of? Like the story's going to be public soon anyway, you're going to read it anyway. So if it's that, oh, I, I'm worried they're going to get mad. Well, they're going to get mad in an hour when it goes live. They're going to get mad in 24 hours when it goes live. So you should have no hesitation. If you, in fact, as a reporter feel uncomfortable about going to somebody and saying, this is the story I'm writing about you, that might be a sign that Mm -hmm. what you're writing is something you shouldn't be writing because if you're, if you're not comfortable for it, of course, you can be writing and reporting things that are uncomfortable that you know is going to piss somebody else off. And you're just not that kind of person who is going to be, you know, savoring that conflict or that animosity. But I, I always, you know, at Kotaku, always encourage my reporters, follow up, ask questions. Um, even when somebody has already said something, hey, well, why do I need to get them to make a statement? They already tweeted a thing. They already said a thing. Well, ask them anyway, because you never know what they're going to tell you. That may then become a scoop, may become an original thing. So it's ask, ask, pick up the phone, send an email, whatever it is. Um, try to find out more information and you never know, you never know. And and then they can never say, well, you didn't ask us or here's a thing you should have known. Well, it's like, well, I gave you a chance and you didn't tell me. Yeah. yeah, definitely. In your tenure, asking these questions to so many people in, in the games industry, you've obviously bumped elbows, rubbed elbows uh, and had conversations with people on and off the record at high and low ranking uh, elements. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if, in doing so, you've learned, or rather I should say, seen companies learn how to better navigate the waters of of game development, or if, because that wasn't maybe what your role at the time, seen how they navigate PR in a better way, or even working with uh, journalists like yourself. Uh, I don't know how it is in other fields because it's the field I've covered the most, but I have a sinking feeling that people who do comms and gaming, many of them uh, don't really understand the full range of options at their disposal. Mm -hmm. I'm often shocked at the refusal of some game companies, reps to even talk on background or off the record to help shape a story. Um, You know, and I know in other fields that happens to a fault to the point where you have kind of invisible hands on a story shaping pulling the strings of making sure the reporter didn't say this that or the other and i i am disappointed the extent to which i will have a story that is potentially volatile in some way and i'm like look i know you don't want to comment on this but like let's get on the phone and talk off the record about it and let me get you know tell me more of the the perspective so i can understand so at least i don't write the wrong thing or i don't write a thing where i'm just kind of walking into thinking about this the wrong way or something like that and i found that to this day You'll have entire companies, comm team, comms teams, where it seems like they don't seem to understand that that's an option. And then others who I, I can generally consider to be more sophisticated understand the range of ways to communicate with a reporter um, to uh, you know 
decide, well, we want to be in the story or we don't want to be in the story, but we want to be, you know, we want to be able to, to influence the story in some way. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, I also find that, um, certainly you have, and it really, it's like inconsistent in terms of the ability to get access to developers or to get people to tell stories, but game companies have marketing plans, especially the biggest ones. And for the most part, they only want to talk when they are on the next beat of their marketing plan. Um, there are many interesting and positive stories that I would like to do and wanted to do in the past where I need that, that door to be opened. Like, you know, maybe I could go through the side door or the back door to get the story still, but it'd be really helpful to just open the front door and help me tell this completely uncontroversial story about your game. And yet, oh no, uh, developers are all busy or they're on vacation because they just shipped the game. Okay, well then let's do it in a month mm-hmm. when they're back because I'm still interested and I know the readers will still be interested, but like they're done because the comms team's plan to promote the game ended on launch day or a week after or something like that. And they're done. And it's like, well, there will be people who would love to read about this thing about your game a month from now, two months from now. I, I'm promising your game will still be worthwhile and worth talking about. And they just don't see it. And I think often it's because, you know, the comms teams and the PR teams are part of the marketing teams and most of these companies are many of them. And so that is the function. And of course, many of these marketing teams have historically assumed that the journalists are part of their teams as well. So, you know, many a time earlier in my career, back when like sending physical swag was more of a thing to reporters, even if I wasn't interested in it, we would still be sent things that would then say like, thank you for your help in launching this game. And I'm like, I didn't help y'all. Like I was here to cover it and report on it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't here to lend an assist, but that's just sort of a, a mindset that that's, you know, sort of was there. And it's part of what I was saying about kind of a shift towards mm-hmm. seeing maybe um, influencers as fulfilling more of that role and recognizing that maybe you know the, the media is not quite there. Of course, what we haven't even talked about is the, the frailty of the, and the fragility of the media right now and the troubles mm-hmm. you know, in my right. industry um, that lead somebody like me to doing uh, reader-funded journalism, which is going fine but, um, and going well. But you know, reporters in general are in a challenged state professionally right. because outlets are, you know, big and small uh, in gaming and outside of gaming coverage are facing lots of challenges. So arguably these game companies are dealing with, you know, a, a, a weakened adversary when they're dealing with the press, given that the companies by and large are still doing pretty well, even despite some of the, the, the layoff uh, I, in, in earnings woes they've had. I regularly run into what you're describing though. The comms team shuts down after X time yeah. <laughs> and it's very frustrating, right? Perhaps, and I, our positions are different, but as somebody who right. likes to do developer interviews and I'm very proud of the, the, the four years of, or three years of XCP and how yeah, you got a who's who of people been on there. I, I tried to, I've tried for that, but it's been funny because to, to try and get more or somebody from a, a recent game at some point, sometimes the comms just shut down. And that has been a wall to run into. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. You haven't moved on, but they've moved on. The players haven't moved on, but they've moved on. Exactly. Exactly. I'm curious. um, We talked, uh, you know, in in the lead up to starting this, this whole conversation, your experience with Xbox um, and you've been reporting on them for a long time. How have they changed their communication in in your times covering games um, specifically in the most recent years? Because I feel like their business strategy has changed. Uh, I've always found them pretty easy to communicate with. One of the things that uh, benefited them is just they're an American company. Uh, I'm an American reporter. I'm dealing with the American comms team. 
mm-hmm. when I have a request, I'm potentially, you know, accessing the people who have the most pull within the company. Contrast that to dealing with Nintendo to use a counterpart, right? Where I'm dealing with the the American division of Nintendo, which is, you know, has far less say and power in terms of what happens at Nintendo. They don't develop games. They don't pick what games are going to be made. They don't choose who which developers are talking. You know, they don't, they don't, they don't have a lot of power in general, um, Nintendo of America. And so if I'm putting in a request that, through them, they got to go back to Japan, whatever. And it's, and, and it's a whole, you know, thorny thing, language barrier, et cetera, and so forth. So Microsoft, by being the... Um, you know, most for much of my career, it was Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. I think Sega was pretty much out of making, out of being a platform, you know, around when I was starting. Um, but Microsoft always had that that advantage, or I always had that, you know, that that perk with Microsoft. And that, again, I can just sort of, like, I was more proximate to the decision makers who could, you know, okay, a story being done, you know, an interview being done, something like that. So mm-hmm. that was helpful. And so I found them to be, a, they had the capability to communicate as much as they wanted to without having to ask for permission from some home office. And they, they I found them taking advantage of that. Um, it certainly helps to develop professional relationships over time. So Phil Spencer, who I'm sure every listener here knows, running gaming at, at Microsoft now, was running their game studios a long, long time ago when I was interviewing him, you know, 15 years ago or whatever that was the first time we chatted. And the fact that he's you know, risen through that division and I've been a reporter ready to ask questions and the fact that Phil and I know who each other are and what have you, and I'm on his Xbox friends list or whatever, I think. And, and uh, you know, means that he knows me. I know him. Um, I don't like chat casually with him, uh, but there's enough familiarity that that can then lead to me getting, an interview or getting an answer on something through him. And over time I've met other people with, you know, at all levels of Xbox. And so that has always been kind of useful Uh, in terms of them talking about what they do. uh, I, they've had, you know, many different messages over the time. And those messages have often been quite bold. Um, I would say that Sony's messaging around what it does has been very consistent since they got into gaming in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, Nintendo has obviously make, made many sharp turns, you know, going from GameCube to DS and Wii or going from mm-hmm. Wii U to Switch. Um, whereas Microsoft, you know, I can remember being at the infamous Xbox One reveal event, uh, you know, at Microsoft campus. And I'm the one who was sitting in the room interviewing uh, Phil Harrison. And he told me that, everybody's games would need to connect to the internet once every 24 hours. And I was immediately, you know, texting that back to the home office at Kotaku. I'm like, I can't believe what he just told me. And I'm being like escorted to the next interview I have. Cause it's like scheduled interviews. And I think it wasn't while walking from the Phil interview to my next, Phil Harrison interview to the next, but I think probably the walk from the, the one following Phil Harrison to the one after that, where I was intercepted by an Xbox comms person. Are you going to report that? Are you going to write that? And I'm like, I already sent it back to the, the office, you know, to mm-hmm. Kotaku. We're covering that. And they, you know, they, I think they knew as soon as he said that, that that was going to be a, a problem for them. Uh, they were trying something that maybe they were too honest <laughs> about the extent to which they wanted their users tethered to the internet. And they were certainly, I think, foolhardy in trying to, uh, 
uh, frame entertainment other than gaming as such a central thing to uh, console the console experience, particularly for the kind of people who are going to be interested in a console when it's first announced. Those aren't the people that are going to get excited because they can watch football games and have a football app snapped to the side, you know, their display that, yeah. via Xbox One. Well, the snap was an interesting concept. So like I was there for, for that where on the one hand they had a whole big, like come to our campus and look at all of these, you know, we have all these tents set up. Was it on their campus? It was somewhere in the area. And, but we have, you know, we're giving access to all these executives and all that kind of stuff, which was like very like open and, you know, to an extent transparent. And that was the good aspect of it. The, the bad aspect of it, at least for them, it was fascinating for readers was mm -hmm. just the ridiculousness of some of the things that they were saying that they were doing. Um, and then they got conservative about, I think, talking about what they were doing. I think they were uncertain for a while. I find anybody who's in third place in a three-way console war, though, tends to do the more interesting things. And so I find as a reporter, ask the people who are losing or struggling or therefore innovating uh, for the interviews as opposed to the people who are in the lead. Because the people in the lead are like, we don't need to talk to you. Like, we're, we're kicking ass already. What, what, why are we stopping chat with you? But the people who are struggling or trying to claw in and get some more market share or whatever. Those are the people who are more likely to want to talk to you. Um, and so, you know, that, that's evolved. And Phil Spencer's personality is very, you know, one of being very personable and um, friendly. And, 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 you know, I think it's been challenged by the, some of the news and some of the ways that I think people think about the Xbox division vis-a-vis -vis the, the conglomerate buying conglomerate aspect of Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard King. But um, he's somebody who has, I think, exhibited some unexpectedly positive values vis-a-vis -vis, uh, promoting diversity within his, his teams, vis-a-vis -vis verbally supporting ideas of game preservation, which he talked to me a lot about in an interview I did with him a couple of years ago, where he said basically there should be an industry-wide standard that permits emulators of, of a certain kind, um, and there should be kind of a collective agreement by companies to allow certain things like that, to allow for, for games to be preserved in memoriam which is timely as of you know every day including the day we're speaking where spec ops the line is in the process of being removed from digital stores um as a, as we speak um so i find they've always been communicative not always had the, the the best messages to share at least for their benefit but always fascinating messages to share for my benefit because whether they're great plans or ridiculous plans they make for interesting copy um and I certainly, you know, I think we all know what's coming around the corner. And I reported on it. One of my first stories for GameFile was uh, Microsoft bringing more of its games to more platforms. So I reported Sea of Thieves coming to PlayStation, which I'd heard about last year and um, hasn't been officially announced yet, but I uh, have good reason to believe it's coming. And so I, you're still confident in that after that story has come? Yeah, came? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I have a general sense of, of, of when. Um, It'll, uh, we'll, we'll be playing it, but yeah, and I wouldn't have published it if I wasn't confident. And there's always some nervousness because you're, you're putting yourself out there and you don't have the confirmation to point to and say, ah, see, prove it. But, um, yeah. But Can I ask a question on that? that? Yeah. I, I'm curious when you run into information like that, where yes. li like the idea that rare might bring sea of thieves to PlayStation, uh -huh. when you run into that type of moment, you have the decision to obviously state the, the, the information that you've heard. But also, right. to your point, you have a good good sense of when that might be happening. You have to make a selection of what to share and what not to, likely based on, I guess, the, the validity of the source or 
how much they can tell you in that moment. How do you right. gauge what to say and what not to say in, a, in an instance like that? Well, I heard about it in October or November of last year, and I published something in January. So that mm -hmm. probably you know should tell you something about how ready I was to report something. And it wasn't just because I was leaving Axios and you know was busy with other things. Although that honestly was a factor. Like I needed to figure out how I was getting to the next stage of my career, and so some stories that I wanted to dig into, I wasn't able to put as much energy into because I'm building a Substack, you know, sub, you know, platformed uh, newsletter with with GameFile, and I, you know. Was, figuring out what my, what my next phase would be and was, had an interview with the head of gaming at Netflix to do and a head of an interview with the CEO of Nexon to do and all sorts of other things. So some of it is just like juggling stories. So some mm -hmm. of that, it's that like, like there are stories that I will not get to this week because my kid was sick. And of course my kid being sick is far more important than any stories I report, but like real life happens. Right. And so, and that, that can impact where you are in a story and what you're able to report. And, um, but basically you don't want to publish anything with just one source. That would be ridiculous mm -hmm. because um, there's very few instances where one source is good enough. Um, mm -hmm. Sources can be people or documents or I guess other things, but bear that in mind. So when somebody is saying, you know, according to sources uh, or to, according to two sources or whatever it might be, like mm -hmm. those can be a person told me this and then a document that I saw that I believe, you know, uh, to be real are the two sources, right? It can be a variety of things. It can be people who are telling you something on the record because um, you, so you can name them and then that adds credibility to what they're saying because they're putting themselves out on the line versus if they're not willing to put themselves out there. And there are very understandable reasons why they may not. But then you're like, well, if you're not feeling the pressure of this better be, you know, this better be right. And genuinely, it's not, uh, generally it's not people um, wanting to be off the record because they're lying to you, but they're mm -hmm. off the record. And so they have the convenience of not having to worry that it might not fully be accurate. Mm -hmm. well, you don't have that convenience if you're the reporter so they may have misheard a part of it. So they may have told you, they may have heard that uh, see if these was coming to another platform and they, they think I said PlayStation, but they're not, you know, they'll tell me PlayStation because that's what they think they heard. But mm -hmm. maybe they actually heard switch. Maybe they actually heard Atari 7,800 to be ridiculous. And like, they may not be sweating it because they're never thinking at any moment. Oh my God, my name is going to be out there saying this potentially wrong thing, but you as the reporter are, so you want to be like, how sure are you PlayStation? Why are you sure it's PlayStation and mm -hmm. not this other thing? You know, Jeff Grubb, who reported this about an hour before I ran my game file story and my game file story indicates that I asked for comment the weekend before. So I was not just picking up on what Grubb had reported, but he, mm -hmm. he, I believe he's reported switch and PS five, I think, mm -hmm. right. Or switch yeah. and PlayStation. And I had only heard PlayStation. So, you know, we'll see, like maybe it's both, but like the, the, the channels through which I had discussed this with people, it led me to feel good about PlayStation, not feel good about other things, feel good about it being Sea of Thieves. I've heard about other games. I've heard about games from individual sources, um, but because they're only individual sources, I wouldn't even you know take. I wouldn't even have as a, a takeaway from this conversation. Oh, it's going to be more than one game. Like mm -hmm. there may be reason to think it's more than one game. We've certainly seen rumors about Hi-Fi Rush mm -hmm. um, as an example, but that's not something I heard about directly. So like I have not reported that Hi-Fi Rush would be coming to other platforms. Um, I'm assuming that if Sea of Thieves is coming to PlayStation, then that represents a pretty significant crossing of a line for Microsoft that would seem to be consistent with thinking about their business more broadly. In fact, it seems it's both crossing a line, but also consistent, right? They've talked about having their games on more screens and reaching more people. When I talked to Phil Spencer two years ago, he told me that he wanted Starfield to be Todd Howard's most widely played game. I say, how do you do that if you keep it exclusive? Well, 
it's because we're putting it on more screens. Well, another way you do it is you don't keep it exclusive. In that case, I don't have any reason to think Starfield isn't remaining on Xbox and, and PC only, but who knows? Um, but if you do have a game like Sea of Thieves, which has saturated the Xbox player base and the PC player base and has sold as many copies as it's probably going to sell, and then you say, well, where are we going to get more players? PlayStation would seem to be a place you're going to get more players. So it's both a natural part of what you do, I think, if you're a Microsoft trying to maximize player base, but it also does feel like you're you're putting a game out on the same platform whose bosses were claiming last year you shouldn't be allowed to buy Activision Blizzard King because they say they can't trust you to still put Call of Duty on other platforms, right? So it's like you're you're doing something that your own competition claimed that you weren't going to do, and yet they had to have known, which is kind of interesting, right? If mm-hmm. if this is all the case, so um, yes, I so I I still believe it's going to happen. Maybe it'll be announced by the time people listen to this. We'll we'll find out. Maybe it won't be announced for another month or two. We'll we'll we'll. we'll find this out. is going up an hour or so after. It's going to take me. You never know. Download. You never this know. I mean, Sony State of Play is tomorrow. So like, you know, if you run into a hitch, if life gets in the way for you, and you know you. You fall on the, the 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 covenant sword behind you for some reason. You get an injury. You, you know you might you might be delayed a day, and this might be announced on state. I don't know if it'll be announced at Sony State of Play, but um, yeah. So you know we'll see. we'll we'll see. We'll see. How, do, how are you guys upset about Sea of Thieves coming to you, other platforms? Okay. So first of all, he's Captain Logan. His his thing is Sea of Thieves. This right. is the the Reaper's Mark from Sea of Thieves. Right. So so more people playing. You like this? I would. Then, right? yeah, I would love it. it. I, I would be fine. Oh, uh, first off, uh, to to kind of lay out my stance, uh, in bias aside, I am in the game because of the content that I've made for them. So I have a heavy bias towards, the, towards the studio. Right. Well, so you know, you must um, know them. They must have already so, consulted with you about coming to PlayStation. No, they haven't. That's the weird thing is <laughs> is I talk to the devs on a regular basis, and I haven't gotten it, it, the devs that I've talked to oh. don't know a thing about this. So, okay. and that's the thing is, is the concern that I have is not so much if, if Sea of Thieves actually goes to Sony or to, to switch, uh, that was a thing that I've wanted since 2019. Right. Um, the concerns that I have have always been around the, the studio that is currently working. They have, I think four studios total that are so that are, that are contracted, but also the main studio that are working towards, uh, building right. content for that game on top of Everwild. I don't know if they have the bandwidth to try to port that to other systems and maintain support for those, or if that is something that is going to get subcontracted out to another studio and what the legalities behind that are. So that was my only ever concern with that. But I I will be very interested to see if that actually happens because it's a huge break from the branding of, of Xbox and stuff. I have a thought, but I would like to hear your response to him first because I have a question. Go ahead. Oh, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that developers you're speaking to don't know about it. That, that, that's very intriguing um, to hear to hear that. So we'll 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 find out. Uh, I guess whether or not. How do you prove a negative though, right? What if this doesn't get announced for a year? Then I guess I'll I'll look like a fool. But we'll we'll see. I don't I don't think it'll be that long. But we'll, we'll see. Oh, juicy and fun and exciting. I I have enjoyed as as somebody who I've gone where. I feel my dollar is most valued through the course of my gaming history. I was PlayStation. Mm. Then I went to Xbox 360 and then ended up on PS4. And I tend to main Xbox now. My beat, my beat, if a content creator can have that, is Xbox. Yes. Um, I enjoy games in many places. But as somebody who absolutely adores and loves Halo and Gears, the idea of more people playing it is good for me. And then I wonder, what is the health of the brand if 
they no longer have to have you no longer have to have the xbox and then i step in to look at the more modern elements and and steven maybe i'm off base but the idea that i don't actually care if i as long as i have my controller and my achievements do i really right. care if there is a box um and i really wonder you know you i think you would have a more nuanced perspective just by way of reporting but also the time invested uh in the industry do i care like should i care as a consumer that's not my problem i just want to play games and i want people to play what i like because i want more of it i mean i think you want more than one company in the world to make toasters but i don't know that you ultimately want or would want should want there to be a certain toaster required for the bread you like right yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's an oddly appropriate uh, analogy. I mean, we understand that like what's happening in gaming, there's more innovations in gaming than in toast, right? To extend the metaphor and people are trying to figure out new ways, you know, if toast can make you cry or if you can get live service toast, what have you. But there's other th uh, gaming to be slightly more serious. Gaming is a constantly evolving medium and art form. And so there is, it, it is one of the reasons I love covering it is that it is the sands on which the developers and the creators stand is constantly shifting. There, there's no solid ground the way there is, I'd say in, um, in writing a novel or in uh, even movie making where the technology has changed a bit over time, but not to the extent to which technology and the platform is constantly changing in gaming. People are kind of refiguring out how to, visually represent the things that they're creating right in gaming whether it's you know the advent of 3d graphics and polygonal graphics you know in the 90s or whether it is the the rendering and the processing power that allowed for more open worlds in you know the 2000s and putting more and more characters on screen you know in the, in the decade hence but also having more internet connected worlds and experiences and, and then the innovation of games being able to be patched which obviously a lot of people are you know, very grumpy about because they feel it's allowed games to ship in rougher states but for game the ability for games to evolve over time and be reactive to what players are experiencing all of those things require smart people being able to make a living doing this and so there's an ecosystem that involves first party right and owning a platform as a company and then being able to charge a cut to people who are not native to your platform, I'm talking about third-party developers, and then being able to have a relative cost advantage by not having to put it, you know, pay that 30% or whatever it is um, when it's a first-party game, right? And you're not having to pay yourself the 30%. There is an economics that can make it very powerful to be a platform holder and therefore can allow for investment in gaming that is far greater than perhaps what even a third-party publisher or developer can afford to do which is why Nintendo, for example, has been able to ride, you know, um, some very low depths in their mm -hmm. run and then being able to finance great innovation and experimentation as they have, you know, it doesn't always hit. I like Labo, but Nintendo Labo wasn't exactly a worldwide phenomenon <laughs> the way that, you know, Nintendo Wii was or the way that Wii Fit was or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But a company that can kind of constantly finance that kind of experimentation is valuable and perhaps they might argue the best way to do that is to own the platform as well. And so when you think about what Xbox is doing, I think the you don't really want to cry that much for a company that just generated $27 billion in the last three months of uh, last calendar year, which is the earnings that they put out um, this, this just a few hours ago before we, we spoke um, for, the, for the last quarter, of, third quarter, I guess it is, of their fiscal year, but the last quarter of calendar year 2023. Um, and by the way, their, their Xbox or their gaming revenue is up 60%, I think 55% or so, I'm doing this from memory now, was from Activision Blizzard. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so everything was growth. And while actually they are not growing as fast as some other divisions of Xbox, which might indicate, or other divisions of Microsoft, which might indicate why they might be feeling pressure to do, have done more cuts because internally they're probably looked at as like, well, why are you not growing as fast as these, you know, AI, you know, cloud server people or right. LinkedIn or something like that. But, um, so there's, you know, there's some of that going on, but generally I think the question about, is there a problem for the Xbox gamer? If Xbox games are on more platforms, the main problem would be if it destroys their business model such that they cannot finance the kind of experimentation and innovation that would be rewarding for Xbox players or gaming players in general to experience. It would be sad and disappointing mm-hmm. if Nintendo and Sony by being virtual, still being first parties with their own platforms are able to finance more creativity and innovation than Xbox. If Xbox has sort of lost the ability to be a platform holder, but I don't think that's what's happening. Like I think Xbox is just kind of redefining what the platform is. And for them, the platform is not so much the box. It's that service that you're tethered to, which was previously thought of more of Xbox live. Mm-hmm. It is now thought of more of as the game pass ecosystem, which has its own fraught problems in terms of, right the cuts that developers get from that and the kind of games that can thrive or succeed and the economic model around paying developers for, you know, engagement of their games and who gets to decide what games get financed and made in, in a game pass model. But ultimately I, a platform is essentially the connective tissue that binds a large number of games together and then potentially finances the development of new games. And Microsoft, I think just doesn't see the physical box as the platform so much as it sees its network of services as the as as the platform and i don't think that means the box goes away the box becomes a device to use it on i've been using the playstation portal which was laughed at and for some good reasons um when it was announced and i'm fortunate enough that sony sent me one so a that means i didn't have to pay for it and b that means i could get one because even people who have money cannot find the playstation portal because it's never in stock mm-hmm. and all it is is a convenient way to play PlayStation five games in a room other than the room where I have a PlayStation five. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a complete luxury item, but what it hints at, like so many things that we've experienced have hinted at in the last several years, I think is this moment when the games we play are, are available everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah. kind of what everybody's going for in some way. And I think that's kind of what Microsoft is going for as well. It's just, we know we make a game that's interesting. Is it acceptable to not have that game be available to the person who wants to play it? And what barriers make financial sense for Microsoft as a company to erect or to not have uh, for somebody to play? And the old model, of course, always was, well, an appropriate barrier would be a $400 console. And then Microsoft said several years ago, well, no, we would also accept the barrier being a several thousand dollar PC maybe not even several thousand dollar PC, right? Mm-hmm. So you guys got used to that, right? You're used to the fact that an Xbox game also launches on PC at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you're, yeah. you're you're comfortable, right? That your, your heart rate doesn't race when you find out. <laughs> it has never Xbox bothered games. me. It's, it's when they remove the, the the places to play it that I start getting worried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, so I, don't, I don't see the console going away. I mean, I, don't, I also don't see them going third party because there are potentially decent margins in making hardware and there's still reasons to make it. But I mean, I guess that could happen. I guess they could, I guess their games could only run natively on playstations and they wouldn't have their own box, but I just don't know. I mean, so that begs the question, given, given your 
sources of knowledge for Sea of Thieves to go right to, to another right. platform. Seeing the benefits and drawbacks, I looked at like uh, Activision Blizzard's return. Or no, let me rephrase that: the top twenty NPD numbers most recently included yeah. five Microsoft games. Four of them were Activision, or, or three of them were Activision. One was Minecraft. One was Starfield. Right. Um, based on either what you've heard in the industry or your own intuition, do you anticipate more games beyond Sea of Thieves, in this case as our example, going to other platforms, PlayStation or otherwise? I, From the as, Xbox catalog, I should be... Clear. Like I was saying before, like if it makes sense for Sea of Thieves to do it, then I don't see why it wouldn't make sense to do it. I mean, they did it with Ori, the Ori games on Switch. Mm-hmm didn't seem like they were ragingly successful. I think the the shocking thing here isn't so much, oh, it's nice to, and that's cute. You port it to another platform and maybe it's going to be, a, it's a niche game. It might have some extra success and you can kind of even understand it. I think the the thing that's kind of mind blowing is the idea of CFDs, which is much more in the blockbuster realm, right? Of games mm-hmm. being exactly. on not a tiny platform, but a big directly competitive platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's weird uh, to think about, but it's also like many years removed from when it was made. So do I see a day anytime soon where you know Halo Infinite Two Infiniter um, is going to be launching on PlayStation and Xbox at the, at the same time? That that would surprise me greatly. Not even because of anything anybody said to me, but just because that would that would be very strange. And and but who knows? Maybe they'll get there at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make sense to take a game that was already exhausted its audience on one thing and and then it's, it's what sony's doing now right they take they don't believe in pc day and date but they believe in pc helping them recoup costs so after a playstation game is two years old or so they bring it to pc because they figure in their mindset we needed to be exclusive first to sell as many ps4s or ps5s as possible to help finance this this game and to build an ecosystem through our hardware which is their main way. I think they still want to connect their players. And then, okay, we've done that. We've done that mission. Let's mm-hmm. get some more money off this game. So what can we do? Oh, we can go and we can put it on uh, PC. Um, it's almost like, why wouldn't they also put it on the Xbox too? If you think about it that way, is that if they're done, if they've sold enough God of Wars everywhere, but I guess they think the only place you should be able to get God of War if you want a console is, is, is PlayStation. Mm-hmm. But if it's like, I don't know, what's a tier down from that? I mean, how's MLB the show doing for them now, right? They didn't have a choice in that. Major League mm-hmm. Baseball did. They're the publisher of that. You know, they're the, they're the rights holder and they wanted to be on multiple platforms. Mm-hmm. And then MLB is the publisher of that game on other platforms. Uh, it still sells well for PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Sony's straight up making a game for Microsoft and Nintendo every year now. Um, it's Sony San Diego Studio that's doing it. So weird stuff happens. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, 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 I use my Xbox probably more than any other console, mostly because that's the one that my kids watch Disney plus on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's great innovations in like, it's sort of ridiculous that like today I accidentally closed a game on my PS five when I opened up another game. doesn't happen <laughs> on my, doesn't happen on my Xbox. I don't know why they don't even warn you. Sony doesn't even warn you. They don't say, Hey, by the way, you're about to close this game. They just, uh, well, you, you must not have wanted it. We yep. think you're smart enough to know what you were doing. And I'm like, I'm not that smart. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, whereas with, uh, with Xbox, right? Quick resume. It's the, it's the greatest thing. And it. so there's features like that that still stand out. I don't know the quick resume itself is worth spending $300, $400, mm-hmm. $500, whatever on, a, on an Xbox for. But um, 
Yeah, I like. I think it's more discomforting looking at this the the you know the leaks from the court case to see that they would put out a Series X with no disk drive, and I wonder. I I don't know if that's still their plan, mm-hmm. but this idea of kind of leaving certain options for playing behind, one of which being leaving the physical media um, era behind. Yes, there's. I download and happily download games and play most of my games down you know through downloads. Own very few discs for any games. This generation, very few cartridges for my Switch. But um, to not give people that option or to, to connect it to an external hard drive, you know, to, to offer that option via an external hard drive, which I guess is a supposition there, um, that to me almost feels, that feels more radical to me than bringing your five-year-old game to to PlayStation. That's but, so interesting. I have such a different a different perspective on that because I feel like the the ecosystem having the the single player con- or having the uh the first party content being exclusive is how we have that that renewed investment in the ecosystem from a console perspective yeah. that then helps drive the innovations on a competing platform to push each other to do features that do ring well like adaptive triggers on uh dual sense coming over to xbox controllers because it's such a big hit right things like a uh, quick resume coming over to playstation because people there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to have uh, instances of of operating systems to be able to maintain those right persisting beyond it's uh, that's what i love about that that kind of concept but i can see from that perspective how if you did push games out to other ones you're still receiving revenue but you're not necessarily you're you're decentralizing the the focus on consoles which i think is where we start to to see some of those innovations just look at like nintendo's consistent renewal on on trying to change the the form factor or or how they bring uh experiences to to, for for games through their hardware right i mean arguably nintendo doesn't face enough competition right they have the kid the kid market (laughs) they have the kid market cornered and so the through the you know their the e-shop is uh you know probably five years overdue for an overhaul and it's just not very user-friendly and yet who is their competition, right? This actually goes to the questions in the the Epic Fortnite lawsuit against Apple. Was this idea that Apple, you know, the Apple would say, "Well, we're competing with Google, Android, and if people like the way they do their OS and their, you know, their App Store better, they can always switch over." And Microsoft's like, or Epic's like, "What are you talking about? People buy the phone; they're just kind of locked into your marketplace. We actually believe you're monopolizing, and there should be competition for, and there should be multiple App Stores on your on your platform. You know, you you mm-hmm. this is anti competitive and." lack innovation, whatever, this should be antitrust. And and so far, you know, the courts largely, well, pretty much entirely sided with, uh, with Apple, except for one, one t- small aspect of that. Um, so arguably, even when you have three competing consoles, you don't have sufficient competition to really motivate innovation in areas that a company doesn't care to innovate in. And so Nintendo cares to innovate in game, game design. They don't seem to care to innovate that much and in, say the shopping experience or the operating system experience or something like that. And I think they feel no pressure other than what they choose to do. In the case of PlayStation and Xbox, my sense is that there is more direct competition in terms of feature sets of the two boxes because they're seen as more of a, I choose this one versus that one. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm actually with you in a lot of this. Is that I don't expect like, the, again, the next Halo to go day and date on PlayStation as well. I think that that would be very confusing to me if they did that. Um, so I do think that Microsoft would still use game ex- exclusivity as a distinguishing component of what they have. I mean, certainly they wanted uh, Indiana Jones to be exclusive when it was initially initially going to be third party, right? And so they this came out in the, in the court case last summer um, with with the with Sony and the FTC and what have you. 
um, to that they went to Disney and they said we re- we want to renegotiate the deal. We want Indiana Jones to be exclusive because hey, they get PlayStation, uh, they get Spider Man exclusive over there. We want indie exclusive, and so they clearly are interested in exclusivity, but they're also interested in funding their games. And we we are seeing just a variety of different ways companies saying games are really costly to make. The price of games has not gone up in ages, even though inflation, you know, in terms of inflation, um, sixty dollars isn't. Of course, of course, wages have changed over, or or not changed over years as well. So maybe that's a, a fallacious argument, but. The cost of games, the cost of making games has definitely gone up. And so where else, you know, you know, you got to make money, I guess, in more ways to uh, pay for these games. And we see companies f- trying to find alternate means to do so, whether it's, you know, paying $40, $30 extra to get Suicide Squad access three days early, hoping the servers don't go down for one full day that you paid for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or it's, it's uh, you know, putting that game out on other platforms after it has run its course on its existing ones, which is a strategy that we're actually seeing Sony and Microsoft both deploy differently. And we'll see the extent to which I'm right and other reporters are right about them pursuing uh, bringing some of their games to other platforms. But nothing I've heard, even though single source stuff um, to assuage, I guess, some anxiety has involved day and date launches on Xbox and PlayStation of games or in franchises that were previously Xbox first. So, I mean, that's you know. interesting. And as, as we're wrapping down, I do want to get to get, to give you a chance to really talk about game file because I find that to be a really cool endeavor, sure. but I'm, you mentioned Nintendo needs more competition. We've talked a lot about Sony and Xbox, Xbox and Nintendo are its own relationship. And I wonder if, you see anything in the pipeline known or unknown to, to common gamers that might allow Xbox to either compete with Nintendo or fully step away from that market. I mean, Banjo, I think is the name that gets tossed by a lot of gamers. Often we saw blade right. is coming. We know blade or we believe blade to be exclusive based on right now. Clear verbiage. Um, is there anything that you, you see that's going to position them to to compete in a more readily available way with Nintendo? Wait, I'm I'm trying to figure out how Blade would be involved in them competing with Nintendo. I sub- Blade <laughs> is more of a reference to uh, the idea that they you talked about exclusivity in oh, yes. Jones. They've got yeah, this, yeah, they've got yeah, that. Yeah. So what what they, might be financing them to do things? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Okay, because yeah, I don't I don't know the Blade fits. I don't the, think Blade Nintendo's put them in Smash. I've seen but, that e store. I know what's on there. <laughs> but but Blade and Smash, why not? Um, so, I mean. I don't. I mean, I love Banjo Kazooie and Banjo Tooie, and I even love Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Balls back in the day. I thought that was a fantastic game. I just never played the Game Boy Advance Banjo, but otherwise, I've, I've covered all the Banjo games and, and played them. I didn't even know there was one. Wasn't there? I, maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought there was a. I thought there was a GBA Banjo game. I could be misremembering. Goes to Google. Check, check out. Let's see if I know what I'm talking about. Banjo. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't. It, it comes from having the developers who who are going to make games that that hit the audiences you know what nintendo is really masterful at doing is reaching a very wide age demographic and making a game that a kid might be delighted to play and that an adult would also would not feel foolish playing with them and um that's just good game design and i guess approachable character design what have you it's not like like i have two seven-year-olds and it's not like it's not like they just want to play the most childish things possible. It's that they, like any of us, 
seemed attracted to games that play well and are repulsed by or repelled, I guess it would be a better way of putting repulsed a little strong. They're repelled from games that are not well designed and that are clunky and that have bad controls. And so in some ways there's universal aspects of it, but you got to make something that's somewhat in the milieu of a thing that a kid would be interested in. And um, aside from the most popular game in the planet or of all time, Microsoft doesn't have any. So aside from that one thing, they have Minecraft. Um, so I think they would argue they're probably already doing pretty well in that, that sector. Um, but they, yeah, they don't have anything that makes me as a parent be like, okay, I want to let my kids know that gaming on Xbox exists as well. They think gaming only exists on Switch. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's complicated enough if they knew that the other device is under. I think they think the Xbox just plays Disney Plus, and I'm not about to emphasize it. It does anything else. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know what Microsoft might be doing, but I do notice that when I when I watch a PlayStation developer showcase or the Xbox Direct that happened a couple of weeks back or whatever, I'm like, there's not even an effort made to reach the kind of person that Nintendo directs seem designed to reach, which is at least mm -hmm. in part a group of people that are people like me who are parents of people who play games, who might be interested in um, a games that they can play with their kids. Like that just that aspect of it doesn't exist. And I don't actually fully understand why there isn't more of an effort and maybe they've decided they just can't compete or maybe they've recognized, maybe they've all, all those execs and decision makers have seen their kids, you know, play subway surfers on the phone and realize mm -hmm. like what, are, there's, there's no way it's like free to play games on the phones or already the thing that, have, you know, captured that, that audience. So I don't know. I mean, a thing that's interesting about Microsoft and Xbox is how they, uh, how they dip back into their back catalog. And I feel like they do not do it nearly as effectively as Sony and Nintendo. So Nintendo is famous, right? About maintaining its franchises. Cause Steven, am I ever going to get my gears collection? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, they did, back catalog. they did a great job with the, with the master chief collection. Once they finally mm -hmm. fixed it, it took them a few years. Right. But like, there's not a like, Oh, let's take a forgotten franchise from Xbox's past and bring it mm -hmm. back. And I see what you mean. Successfully. Right. There was like, was it crimson? Crimson guys. guys. Not crimson guys. Phantom Dust, right? There was the, the attempt oh, yeah. to get Phantom Dust, but it didn't happen. There's mm -hmm. Crimson Skies that kind of never really came back. There's like, what are the, I, I wonder for you guys, because you guys are big Xbox heads, right? Like, what to you would be the equivalent of Nintendo saying it's time to, you know, dust off Donkey Kong and bring Donkey Kong back and make a new Donkey Kong game, which, you know, there's been rumored that they're going to do that. Or what is the equivalent of Sony saying, you know, we're going to go back into our back catalog and, uh, you know, I always feel like they could bring back SOCOM or something like that and then people would be happy. You know, some time ago they brought back Warhawk as Starhawk. That's itself 10 years old or whatever. What would be the the back catalog pull that you would like to see Xbox do that you then think could, could there could be a good new one? I mean, Perfect Dark seems to be the only one I'm aware of that they've announced where they're doing something like that, right? And it's not even kind of their own pull because they're really hopefully pulling from more of the N64 vibes and the Xbox one vibes for uh, of perfect dark versus perfect dark zero. But what would be the back catalog pull you would like to see Microsoft do? We had this conversation almost yesterday. Yeah. I think <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the conversation conversation yielded names like crimson skies okay. and fusion frenzy. But beyond that, you had rare replay. You had the master chief Blinks. collection. Blinks was one of them. That's right. Um, and then even Gears got its ultimate edition. Um, I don't think the legacy of Xbox is nearly as established. Um, you know, people associate Metal Gear Solid with PlayStation, even though you can get that collection in a couple right. places now. 
Um, I don't know that Xbox has anything that they've a well, I should say, that they have not dipped into already. Right. I just don't think they do. Not for the not for the purposes of pure nostalgia. No. I would love. To, I, I how about Geometry Wars, which I think was Activision owned, and they own Activision. It's now. a great choice, but I don't know that it would have that mass is... appeal. But it'd be a great choice. Well, not mass appeal, but like, would that not like <clears throat> that was the game to play for achievements when the 360 launched, right? Like that was. It's true. They it's skipped true. a they skipped a whole generation. Didn't really do anything with it. And it was, it was Activision's franchise to handle. I don't know who has the rights to it now, but I feel like if they said we're bringing back Geometry Wars as a as a fixture for people playing the series consoles. Like, you know, that, I think that would be a fun throwback mm-hmm. to sort of back in the day. A good point. A good point. I do want to say there was a Banjo-Kazooie uh, Game Boy Advance game. Grunch, yes. Grunty's Revenge. Credit to there you, Stephen. There you go. All right. Um, I, I, we are winding down, Stephen, yes. but I do want to, to have a, a moment to talk about game file as it were we got so in the weeds and, and talking about so many cool things oh yeah game file something i'm subscribed to i think people need to to check it out i used to love the the axios news blast but will you talk about your latest endeavor uh so we can plug that accordingly certainly uh and I, my, my kids are on the ipads and they're asking for extra time so if you allow me <laughs> one second to pause live and see if i can give them the more time okay let's see so my son wants okay I do this, this while is- you're while you're tackling that i will tell every listener gamefile.news is where you can check out steven's right. website all right uh, and it's well worth time. the time to do so because you absolutely can check out uh the different media blasts i still don't know how you find news on certain mondays uh logan logan and i were toying <laughs> that around like sometimes well, last monday was last monday was crazy so, uh, yesterday was crazy so there was, was true oh i think i've only seen a request for time from my my son and not my daughter oh uh, oh, no, that's still my son asking for time. Oh, this is going to be. This is bad. the work from home problem you were talking about. This <laughs> is right. what it was. I think I gave my son two two extra editions of 15 minutes more time on uh, on his iPad, but I don't see a request for my daughter. This is going to get ugly. Okay, yeah. so I should re- I should promote this quickly because uh, she's going to be in here. That's mm-hmm. what happened. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Oh, is this it? No, I know. So sorry. Sorry. That was probably not the most compelling bit of the podcast. Maybe it was. I mean, it might have been. <laughs> um, so Gamefile is meant to be, you know, it's if you've if you've found what I've been talking about in this conversation appealing, it's it's that it's it's a mixture of original reporting about the industry and the culture of video games, as well as just a roundup of what's going on. I'm a very curious person about gaming. So I try to include as much, you know, in, in, in any edition as I can. At Axios, I had a twice weekly newsletter, boiled down what was happening in gaming, topped it with original reporting on a regular basis. Um, now it's three times a week through Gamefile. In the month of February, I will be putting up a paywall because I need to I need to be able to feed those kids and and uh, they can't live on iPad time alone. So uh, I need to 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 and I'm, and you know the effort here through reader supported endeavors like mine, like Aftermath, which is ex Kotaku staffers, whether it's uh, um, Second Wind, which is the folks from The Escapist, um, and you know and other efforts like this, is to say, well, instead of having to be beholden to the decisions of some corporate you know bosses somewhere, even the most well-meaning ones, I had well-meaning ones at Axios, mm-hmm. um, but they had other priorities of what they wanted to do with Axios's newsroom and its budget in 2024. Well, my priority is covering video games, 
I'm doing it for readers who care about that stuff and who want and value original reporting, who mm-hmm. want to have their, who still want reporters to be part of the function of gaming existing as a thing, who want there to be people asking questions and trying to find information out. And so while I've had, you know, wonderful full-time jobs and probably could have another full-time job if I pursued it covering games, I thought I have an opportunity to take this newsletter that tens of thousands of people loved reading and over email and say, I'm just bringing it over to, you know, a different platform. I own it now. It's called Gamefile. If you go to gamefile.news, you can read it there. You can sign up. You can get an email to you. One edition out of the three each week will be free in February. The other two will cost you, uh, you know, it's $10 a month or $100 a year. We're on sales at some point because I recognize your subscription fatigue. Um, in, the, in the past month, I found an old interview I did on microcassette with Satoru Iwata when I interviewed him in 2004 and ran a, a good chunk of both the, the written and the audio of that interview, um, kind of a thing that you know I hadn't even re-listened to in 20 years. I was excited to share that. Um, I have just I ran the, the, the news by Sea of Thieves to PlayStation. We'll, we'll see what y'all make of that uh, in time. And um, just this past uh, week ago, when Microsoft did its layoffs, I was able to once again go into the vaults and share some of what Phil Spencer and I discussed in January of 2022, right after the bid for Activision Blizzard was announced. I talked to him about it. I think I'm the only reporter to ask him about the potential for job cuts and and how to think about that. And so I shared some of that in my coverage of the layoffs on Friday. So yes, I have some some fun interviews lined up for the future already. I'll be covering DICE, GDC, the equivalent of E3 Summer Games Fest this year, all the games that are coming out, everything I can. Um, certainly appreciate the work that you guys do, by the way. And um, folks like yourselves who are you know zeroing in on a platform or delivering news in a way that I don't normally deliver it and information you know, through podcast, um, I think is, is, is super valuable as well. And I'm just happy to be part of the, part of the whole, uh, scene putting out, putting out news as much as I can. So yeah. So, so game file is a thing you can get it. Like I said, emailed, you can read it online. You can read it in the Substack Substacks app. If that's your thing, if you're an app person, um, and we'll see, we'll see what, we'll see what comes of it. And hopefully I will get some good Xbox related coverage on there that uh, the people will find will find super interesting. So, yeah. Always look forward to it. Very much so. Very much so. When it was Axios, I would forward it to, to Logan. Uh, yeah. Right yeah. There you go. I can see that now, and not your forwarding, but I can see so much more data about what happens with my newsletter than I could at Axios. You know, it was a company. So, like, I wasn't, sure. thankfully, wasn't, wasn't privy to or in charge of looking at those, that data. But I'm able to, I, I found once I'm stumbling through the interface, the, the back end for, for, for a Substack, and because um, again, my site is, on, I don't work for Substack. It's on there. I own it. I can take it wherever, but I'm going through the Substack's backend. And um, I was able to see that like one of my early newsletters was shared 60 times by from one recipient. So I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, they must have blasted it out to their company. And then they mm-hmm. must have had, this system must have been able to detect that 60 people opened it via that forward or something mm-hmm. like that, which is very interesting. Because I always kind of wondered, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I know how many people have been sent my newsletter at Axios because I would know the overall subscriber number. Mm-hmm. But I never knew like, okay, what does that actually translate to? It's like when people talk about TV ratings mm-hmm. and they, you don't, well, how many people actually watch the show? Because n- not everybody's watching the same show over the full hour it's on or whatever it is, right? So it's like right. people tune in and they tune out or whatever. So I could see some of that. I, I'm trying to avoid looking at too much of the data because ultimately <laughs> it's just the good reporting will hopefully get a good audience and, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't really have the bandwidth to, to try to, to jury rig it or 
go after those of you who are forwarding and say, you need to be paying as well. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say you as a, as a smaller creator who, who does try to do those interviews, I hope that people source you properly and, and you get to enjoy the result of your work. And we appreciate the work that you do. Um, it is too far, too few and far between that we get to see the best reporting. Um, so thank you. That's right. Kind. And yeah, I appreciate the hustle you guys both have. Um, whether it was the Cliff Blazinski interview recently, I know there, it was a little bit frustrating to see some of that make the rounds uh, elsewhere, but you know, you know, you're doing the good work, you know, you're getting those people and people who have that experience and go on your show, know you're for real. And then they know you're worth talking to again. Right. And so the best things you may get out of the people you're interviewing, as you know, or sometimes Thank not you. the first interview, it's that second, it's that, it's that third conversation or whatever. And you guys are, you guys are doing a bang up job. So I was, you. you know, happy to be able to be part of it. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, check out gamefile.news wherever you guys can. Have a fantastic rest of your week, everyone. Take care. Bye.